sorry, you're going to Oh, that's all right. Since we don't have our overhead, we're not going to sing today. So I, I keep Robert out of his solo uh, solo spot. It was nice to be with you. You mean I'm on? You're on. Oh, I'm on. A little bit foggy there. It's too early in the morning. I guess I don't need that. It's nice to be in Memphis this morning. I got in here last night and uh, got a good night's sleep. My body's still on Eastern time, so I'm a little bit more awake, awake than you are. But I'm very impressed to see you, and I wish there was time for us to become more acquainted and to engage in dialogue and the kind of thing that helps uh, men to know each other. Unfortunately, our time is brief, and uh, I, uh, I guess they told me I have two and a half hours to speak. And <laughs> That was derisive laughter. That was not... Affectionate laughter. Uh, the last time I, I spoke that long, I got to the end of my time, and I realized that people were getting rather glazed over, so I found a good clerical way to get out of my talk, and I said to people, I have many more things I'd like to say to you today, but Jesus has whispered in my heart that I ought to conclude. Everybody stood and sang, what a friend we have in Jesus. <laughs> If you get a bunch of men together and you uh, sit around a campfire or you have a good long dinner together where guys begin to feel a little bit more transparent and vulnerable and they know each other well enough that they start to tell their stories, you will quickly discover that almost every man has times in his life when he's hit a wall, when something has exploded in his life in one way or the other, either by his own instigation or by the instigation of others. And he has to really think very seriously about where he's going from this point forward. A few years ago, my wife Gail and I checked into a beautiful little inn in Vermont for a couple of days. And I don't want to make the story too long, but I became very impressed almost immediately with the quality of man that the innkeeper was. He just was an unusual person, and I set out to get to know him. I wanted to know what was deep inside the core of his life that explained the kind of person I'd met. And long about 24 hours uh, into the stay at this inn, he and I sat down at uh, the table for some coffee, and I found myself asking him this curious question. Is there any key moment in your life that you can look back to and say, everything is different from here on out because of that moment, that critical moment? He thought for a moment, said no one had ever asked him that question before, but as he mused upon it, he said, yeah, I can go back many, many years ago to a moment where probably everything I am today uh, began in terms of a massive change in life. I said, can you talk about it? He said, well, quite frankly, I was a young married man uh, doing well professionally, thought I had a good marriage. I came home one day and I found my wife in the arms of my best friend. And he said it exploded inside of me in such a way that I discovered rage and anger and a furious sense in me that I, I, never know, I never knew had been there. And all I wanted was vengeance against my wife and my best friend. And I set out in the coming weeks and months after that moment to hurt them as much as I possibly could. And he said it all reached a peak one day when I was sitting in my attorney's office and we were going over the papers that would be uh, served for divorce proceedings. 
And he said, I heard myself saying to the lawyer, I want you to make this as miserable an experience as you possibly can for them. I want you to hurt them so that they'll never forget it. And he said, the lawyer looked at me and he said, Jack, you've had a bad time. You've been terribly wronged. But someone has to show a little dignity in this situation. And the man telling me the story said, those words sunk into my soul in a way that I never expected. Someone has to show some dignity. And he said, if I were to look back to a life-changing, insightful moment where I realized I had to reevaluate everything, he said it would be that moment. Well, all of us might have versions of that kind of a story. Maybe we've never been hurt quite that badly, but a few of us have been fired. A few of us have lost a loved one. A few of us have been terribly humiliated. Some of us have failed. I put myself in the failure column, quite frankly. And about 20 years ago, I can look back at a moment in my life when everything that was precious to me, apart from my personal relationships, but in my work, uh, fell apart. And I kind of date everything in my life from that moment 20 years ago when that moment happened. And I wonder what you would do if you had to identify one, two, or three critical moments after which you have been freshly defined in a whole new way. In the Older Testament, there's a story that absolutely delights me, and it probably delights me more because it reflects my age. I'm in my 66th year of life. And when I turn to it each time, I, I kind of pull something fresh out of it. And because I see so many of you with Bibles, and that impresses me, I'd ask you to turn there. It's the book of Joshua, and it's the 14th chapter. There's two or three paragraphs there that are very, very powerful. Joshua chapter 14. Let me give you a frame around this text before I read it for you. The people of Israel have been liberated from Egypt. They've spent 40-plus years wandering in the so-called wilderness. Moses is dead. Joshua is the new leader. Moses was a great administrative leader. Joshua is a military leader. And they're in the process of occupying what we know as the promised land. Now, the strategy for doing this was to parcel out various regions of the promised land and assign those to the various tribes of Israel. It was their responsibility then to go into the land, pacify it, resettle it, organize it, and it became, in effect, their land. It's a good system. And so if you can grab this mental picture of all the leaders, the dynamic, charismatic leaders of the tribes of Israel getting uh, in a powwow with Joshua and getting their assignments, and you get the impression that the younger leaders were all jealous and covetous of the best of the lands, where the grass was, where the streams of water were, and everybody was trying to avoid the difficult parts of the promised land. And that's where we come to our story. In Joshua 14.6, there appears a man who's been a little bit absent from the text for several chapters now. His name is Caleb. Let me read. The men of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, son of Jehunah, the Kezite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God at Kadesh Barnea, about you and me? I was 40 years old 
when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land. Any of you who've done Sunday school probably remember the day we all heard the story about Moses sending out the 12 spies into the promised land. Joshua and Caleb, who are now in this paragraph, were part of the 12. They went and they explored the land secretly. And when they came back, they carried uh, all kinds of magnificent uh, samples of the produce of the land. But 10 of the 12 also brought back very bad news in their fear They over-exaggerated. They said there are giants in this land. Uh, The cities have walls that are a mile high and a mile thick. There's just no way we can take this land. And they became some of the first great pessimists of the Bible. Only two of the twelve said, you know, we can take these guys any day we want. And Caleb was one of them. So he says, I brought back a report according to my convictions. That's an important phrase. That's not what he saw with his eyes. It's what he saw with his heart. William Blake, the poet, once said, These dim windows of the soul, meaning his eyes, distort the heavens from pole to pole and lead you to believe a lie when you see with but not through the eye. Caleb didn't see with his eye. He saw through the eye from his heart. I brought a report that reflected my convictions. That's an interesting phrase that needs to be pondered. But my brothers who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt with fear. Interesting how people with negative messages can inspire so powerfully in the wrong way. I, however, here's the next key phrase. I, however, followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. That word wholeheartedly is one of the key Hebrew words of the Older Testament. It suggests, as best the writers know how, a man of integrity who is living out of the soul who doesn't respond in moments with his instincts, with his passions, his appetites, his drives, but who lives out of the soul. So on that day, Moses swore to me, the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that of your children forever, because you have followed the Lord your God, here it is again, wholeheartedly, second time. Now listen to Caleb go on. This is my favorite paragraph. Now then, just as the Lord promised, he's kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses when Israel moved around the desert. So here I am today, 85 years of age. And I'm still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. Isn't that interesting? By the way, embedded in that word strong is a sense not only of physical strength, but of sexual virility. I can still have kids with all the young guys. It's a, it's a pretty vivid graphic description of a man expressing the strength of his manhood. I'm still as strong as I was then. I'm just as vigorous to go out to the battle as I was then. So give me the hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourselves heard that the Anakites, the giants, were there and their cities were large and fortified. But the Lord helping me, I will drive them out. Now, if you have a sense of humor early in the morning, this is a good time to kind of smile to yourself. Because here are all these young guys standing around wanting the easy targets, the simple objectives, the stuff that you can get rich quick with real quick. And here's the old guy standing among them and saying, you know, give me the toughest land, the toughest enemy, the biggest cities. Give me everything that's hard and the Lord helping me. I'll handle it. That's the 85-year-old guy speaking. Any of us who are in our 70s and 80s, 
We should love this paragraph. It's an inspiration. When I was 47 years of age, almost 20 years ago, as I said a few moments ago, I had some big critical decisions to make. I remember waking up one Sunday morning and sitting on the edge of my bed thinking about the fact that uh, a lot of the people that uh, were my compatriots in ministry were on their way to their churches across the country getting ready to preach the Bible, and I had no place to go. My wife had already left the bedroom that morning to go out and uh, take up some of her chores, and uh, I was sitting there all by myself feeling just about as lifeless as you can get. And I turned on the television to make some noise, and on the screen came the face of Robert Schuller. Now, I, I'm not making a comment about Dr. Schuller this morning. I, I was not a strong devotee of the things he did, nor was I in any way a critic, but there he was. And I wasn't in a mood to listen to preaching, so I was reaching for the remote to switch the channel to cartoons or something. <laughs> when suddenly, Schuller said this. He said, I want to preach today about enthusiasm. I said, back to the screen, whatever else do you preach about? (laughs) He said, enthusiasm is an energy which is manufactured in the heart. And it is oblivious to the circumstances around it. Now, perhaps many of you already knew that. But for me, that was a fresh insight that morning. Enthusiasm is an energy that is produced in the heart and it is oblivious to the circumstances around it. Over the years, as a young leader, when people talked about me in the church that I pastored and the organizations I led, I often would hear people say things like this with some degree of affection when they characterized me. They would say, Gordon's an idea person. He's always got a vision. Don't hang around him too long or you'll find that you have something to do. And I used to love hearing people say that about me. That was that was just great. That was the kind of person I really wanted to be. I wanted to be a visionary. I wanted to be someone who made people get excited about objectives. And that's the way I'd lived. But the stunning reality to me that morning as I thought about this was they weren't saying that anymore. And they weren't saying it anymore because I had come to a point in my life where I no longer had a vision. And there wasn't enthusiasm in my heart. It was a very, very difficult time for me. And what was even worse, I began to realize that in the recent months, if there was any enthusiasm in our home, it was the enthusiasm that was being generated by my wife, Gail. And I was living off her enthusiasm like a neighbor might warm himself off another's fire. I discovered that was a terrible insight for me that morning. And I thought about it for the longest time, and I finally went out to the living room where Gail was sitting, and I said, I have an apology to make to you. I've been living off your enthusiasm for the last many months. And it's because you have a vision and I don't. And I'm going to do my very, very best to wrestle with the question, if a man has lost his vision for life, if he's lost his enthusiasm, can he get it back? And if he can, I want you to know I'm going to get it back. I'm not going to put this weight on your shoulders. Well, you know, she really didn't know what I was talking about, but she accepted it. And over the next days, I took long, hard hours asking the question, how do you get your vision back? How do you find renewal in the second half of life? 
so that it's not just a waste. And that was the great critical moment of my life. And everything has been different ever since. One of the things I did in those days to to explore my own heart was to take out a legal pad and make a list of all the old men I knew. Men in their 70s and their 80s. Made this long list. And when I got through, I looked down the list and I said, what do I see in the lives of these men that's impressive or not so impressive? And I don't mean to be disrespectful or mean, but the first thing I discovered as I looked down that list was I didn't like most of these men. They were not people I really wanted to be with. I could be with them if I had to, if necessity demanded, but they were not the kind of people if I had an extra ticket to the ball game that I would invite. They were not the kind of people I would enjoy sitting down to for breakfast just for the fun and pleasure of being together. And I asked myself, why is that? And my answer back to myself as I thought about it was because as a lot of us get older, we become more and more centered on self. We become more and more complaining about the things which are not convenient to us. We become jealous and even a little bit enraged over the younger men and women who want to take our place. We become fearful and anger begins to show itself, irritability, in ways we never suspected before. And I looked at that and said, is that really the kind of man I want to become in the second half of life? And then I looked closer to my list and I discovered there were four or five men who I would kill to be with. Delightful men. Men who were always on the growing edge in their 70s and 80s. And I asked, what is it about them that I like? Well, to give you a short list, I discovered that these were men who were always living with gratitude. They found things to be thankful for all day long in the small and large issues of life. They were men who did not hold on needlessly to power in their leadership, but now were men known as wise men, discerning men. Men with stories that younger people loved to hear. These were men who loved their wives, and you could see it when they were together, how they touched each other and the little endearing code words that went between husband and wife. These were men who rejoiced in the success of younger generations. And they were men who were always reaching out and grabbing for new ideas and loving the process of growth and change. And I said to myself, how can I lay the tracks so that I can be kind, become that kind of man when I'm in my 70s or 80s. Some of you are Methodists, and if you're old enough, you may remember the name of E. Stanley Jones, who for almost 50 years was an evangelist and missionary in the, particularly the country of India. He was a good friend of Gandhi's. He traveled the world, and tens of thousands of people came to Christian faith because of E. Stanley Jones, and not just his preaching, but just the kind of man he was. When Jones was 83, he had a debilitating stroke. And the stroke left him unable to speak, virtually unable to move. But somehow in the months that followed, he wrote one more book. I think it was his 50th book. He managed to mutter it through almost paralyzed lips into a tape recorder. And his daughter and son-in-law translated the words into print. In that book, E. Stanley Jones said these words. There are scars on my faith, but underneath those scars, there are no doubts. Christ has me 
and all of my being with total consent, that's wholeheartedly, and with the cooperation of all my life. The song I sing is a lifelong song, not the temporary exuberance of youth that often fades when middle and old age settles in with their disillusionment and cynicism. No, I'm 83, and I'm more excited today about being a Christian than I was at 18 when I first put my feet upon the way. What Jones began to teach me and I began to see in my midlife was, I have an opportunity, as do you, for the second half of my life to be far more exciting and far more effective than the first half ever was. Today, at the age of 66, I love to look at 38-year-olds square in the face and say, you know, in life, you're just doing warm-ups. The best years are ahead if you really want them. But what I've discovered as I read E. Stanley Jones and I read the life of Caleb, a man at 85 ready to do his best work, what I read in the lives of men like that and many, many more men and women is this, that you don't get that way unless your journey through life is intentional. Key word, intentional. Just like I have to plan my finances, just like I have to plan my career track, I have to engage in the architecture or the development of my life intentionally. And that's where I think many men in their 40s and 50s begin to lose it. Because somehow they start running out of gas, too many of them anyway, And they begin to just drift along with the tide. And they forget that the second half of life will only flourish as it does for Caleb if they are intentional about every dimension of their lives. And they work in cooperation with God's Spirit on a life plan. That's been the burden of a new book I've written called A Resilient Life, which I think they may have out there in that bookstore. At least I hope they do. Let me talk about that for a few moments as to what the intentional life looks like. When I was 15 years of age, I went off to prep school 2,000 miles away from home. I had great hopes about being a football player, uh, all 138 pounds of me. And I went out for football, put on the pads, and worked out for three days with the team. And finally, the coach decided that there were better things I could do with my life. I've often imagined he called the track and cross-country coach and said something like this. Marvin? we got a kid over here who's a real wimp, but he is fast, and we're willing to trade him to you for nothing. (laughs) So the next day, I lost my locker, and I lost my pads, and I showed up at the track with my shorts and sneakers and began to learn how to be a runner. The coach over there watched me for several days, And finally, one day, he took me aside and he said, I think we could make a good runner out of you if you'll be willing to do two things. If you will be willing to trust me and therefore do everything I ask. And secondly, if you'll be willing to push yourself through the barrier of pain to reach your potential. He said, I want you to go back to your dorm room and think about that for the next day or two. And when you have the answer to those two questions, come and see me. A day or two later, I went back and I said, sir, because we called all of our instructors, sir, sir, I'm prepared to do that. And over the next many, many weeks, next months, Marvin Goldberg began to turn me into a runner. Then there came an evening when he said to me, tomorrow night, I'd like you to come to our home and have dinner with my wife and me. 
And at the moment, I came gladly because dorm food leaves a lot to be desired. And after the dinner at the coach's home and his wife had left the table, he reached behind him. I was 15 years of age. I'll never forget this moment. He reached behind him and he brought off the shelf a school notebook with my name written across the front cover in large black letters. And he turned to the last page. And there I read June 1957. That was the year I was to graduate, or the month I was to graduate from prep school. It was 40 months away. And on that page was a whole list of races and time trials that he was thinking about that I would run 40 months from now with the times that I would run those events in. I looked at those times, and I want to tell you, they were incredible. There was no way I was ever going to run those times. And I looked at him incredulously and I said, Coach, there's no way I could run like that. He said, Watch. And he began to turn the the book backwards from the back page by page toward the front. And I realized that every page represented one of the 40 months coming back to where we were. Every month there were more races, there were more time trials. And you could see that the times were changing until we reached the month we were in now. And suddenly it hit me. A man had poured hours into designing an intentional plan for the development of my athletic life. He saw exactly what I was now and what he believed I could become 40 months later if I would live intentionally. I can't prove it line by line to you, but I have that same feeling. That's exactly what Jesus had in mind when he called 12 men to follow him. He didn't give them the details. He just said, follow me, and I will make you into something. If he had told those disciples what they were going to become over 40, 50 months, I'm sure every one of them would have walked, just like I wanted to walk that night. But he brought them along intentionally. And when the 50th and the 60th and the 70th month came, they were totally different men. And that, gentlemen, is what I believe God wants from you and me. That, in a word, is what Caleb is talking about when he says, I followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. It means that every detail and every nuance of life was was in sync with what it means to be a man who follows God. And so at 85 years of age, Caleb is ready to perform because all the energies of his life have been converged for this moment. So my question to you this morning is, what does the intentionality of your life look like? Is your vision for life big enough so that conceivably your very best work will be done in your 60s, in your 70s, in your 80s. Now, in the book of Resilient Life, I've tried to address that question, and I've come up with four answers. In the moments we have before 729, and I'm still talking and you walk out the door, let me see if I can give you just a few thoughts about what I believe is important in the development of a resilient life of intentionality that gives us a reasonably good shot of being kind of like Caleb was if we make it to the age of 85. As I've studied the scriptures, 
I've made this observation, by the way. Most of the great heroes of the scripture did their best work, either as young men or old men, but there are very few midlife men in the Bible who get much done. That's a very interesting thought. And I wonder why. But as I've studied them, I've, I've sensed, lining them all up and trying to ask them imaginary questions, as I've studied them, I've discovered that there seem to be four marks of a resilient person in the scriptures. And the first of them is that these men are always in alignment with a big picture view of life. They are always looking downstream at where life is likely to go in the next 5, 10, 15 years. You who are in management would simply call this strategic long-range planning. Those of you who run organizations, who are building businesses, who are in one way or the other are leading people and trying to manufacture widgets or provide services of one type or another, you know that your effort and the efforts of the people around you are just as good as the big picture that you have painted as a leader that shows downstream where things are headed. That's one of the great jobs of a leader, to paint a picture for people. A picture that's so wonderful that people can't afford not to be caught up in its imagination, in its joy. We really do not have much time for people who are just all talk and who have a perspective that's just out in the near future until next weekend. We love to be with people who have this big view of where things can go and what's possible. And when I look at the great men and women of the Bible, that's one of the marks I see. They are always moving towards something which is grand and glorious in their time. And so I've often asked myself, what is my big picture view of life? I'm 66. God has given my generation the possibility of at least 20, 25 more good years. My grandfather at the age of 63, 64, knew he had to hang it up. Social Security people in 1932 set the retirement age at 65. And the reason they did so confidently, because all the actuarial uh, numbers said most people die by the age of 65. In 1900, life expectancy was only 39 years of age, gentlemen. Today it's doubled. And that's one of the reasons Social Security is in trouble. I'm not going to make any political statements, but because we're living longer. Medical science, nutrition has been good to us. Technology has been good to us. The nature of work has changed. You and I don't have to go into the mines anymore and get our lungs all fouled up. We just sit at desks in nice air-conditioned rooms and take coffee breaks. No wonder we're living longer. But if you have 20 more good years in you, like I believe I do, if God gives me reasonably good health, what are you going to do with those 20 years? Are you going to go to South Texas or Florida or Arizona and play shuffleboard? Because that's what some people do. And they look at the last 20, 25 years as play years. What a terrible way to live. If God has given to us 25 more good years at the end of 60 or 65, what will you do with them that will give back, that will make it a contribution to your generation. What's your plan? And that's what resilient people begin to do. They, they build a dream. They hear God speak into their hearts. And what they hear is wonderful and awesome. And it makes those last many years of the last third of life the most exciting years. 
A couple of years ago, I had to write an article for Leadership Journal where I, I serve on the editorial staff, and my uh, senior editor asked me if I'd write a, an article about call. And I write this, wrote this uh, not letter, article about call. Does God call people? And in the process, I began to realize that it had been 15 years since I'd really thought about God's call in my life. And so I began to, to pray every day, Lord, expand the big picture view of my life with a freshened call. I want to hear heaven speak all over again about the sort of man I should be and the things I should be doing. A few weeks later, I went off to Germany to speak at a number of pastors' conferences for young German pastors. And at the end of some of those days, young German men who could speak English would come up to me and say, you talk to us like a father. I said, what do you mean by that? Well... The old German men, they talk to us like professors. They scold us. They lecture us. They, they just make demands upon us. But, but you, you tell us your stories. You tell us where you failed. And you tell us where you struggled. And you tell us how God has touched your life. And we need to hear that, they say. That's what a father does. And then I came back to the United States and was in California for another one of these kind of conferences. And at the end of the weekend, the MC got up to thank me for things I'd done, and he said something like this. He said, all weekend long, as Gordon has been speaking to us, I found myself on the verge of tears. Then he said, it's not because he's that bad a speaker. (laughs) But he said, I realized that I wanted to weep because Gordon talks to us like a father. And so many of us in this room feel fatherless. And I'm sitting on the front row listening to this, and it's like God whispers into my heart. You just got your call. Just be a father to younger men and women for the rest of your life. Tell them your stories. Be gentle. Don't compete. Don't tear people apart. Don't brag and boast about the yesterdays of your life. Create an environment in which other people can grow. Just be a father. And I've seen life through a totally different perspective from that point. And that's my big picture. I walk through life today like a father. And my delight is in watching younger men and women grow and achieve their potential and hear God speak. I want to be like Eli, the high priest in the Older Testament, who tells young Samuel how to respond when he hears the voice of God in the middle of the night. And I want to tell you, that's one of the most exciting ways to live. I get up in the morning wondering how God is going to allow me this day to engage with people like a father. So resilient people have a big picture view of life. What's yours? The second thing resilient people have is that they know how to repair the pasts in their own lives. It's one thing to always be looking forward, and a lot of people do that fairly well, but more than a few of us, we're walking through life And we're carrying an enormous burden over our shoulder of things in the past which we have never fully resolved. Hurts, wounds, angers, regrets that we've never made right. And we just kind of walk away from these things hoping they're going to disappear. Not realizing that our stories from the past are always alive and gurgling somewhere down deep in the soul until they are appropriately closed. If this were a men's conference for a weekend, I don't want to sound like I got it all put together. I know it all, but I have no doubt 
that it would not be difficult to reduce a significant percentage of you men to tears if we spent an hour talking about our fathers. Because an enormous percentage of men walk through their lives with deep, deep regrets about their relationships to their dads. There's hurt there. There are, there are wounds which come out of a father who never knew how to tell us that we were loved, that we were valued, that we were approved of. We open the Bible and we hear God the Father say to His Jesus the Son, This is my beloved Son and I'm pleased with Him. And some of us, including me, say, Just once in life, I would love to have heard my father say something like that to me. And it often then scopes out the way we do our work and the motives behind our work because more than a few of us spend our lives trying to prove ourselves to a mother, to a father, to significant people in our lives, in our past, who probably didn't make it work the way it was supposed to work. Or we carry shames or guilt about things we did do or didn't do and we've never made right. And we think as the years go by that these things just kind of disappear over the back horizon of our lives, but they do not. They sit in our souls until they are addressed plainly. That's why the Bible calls men and women to repentance, to make things right for which I am responsible. Calls us to forgiveness, to grant grace and mercy to those who have hurt us. Calls us to give consistent gratitude when blessings have come into our lives that we could not have done for ourselves. That's why the Bible calls us to look at everything that happens day by day and ask, how can I squeeze wisdom out of each of these events? What have they meant? And when you see people going into the last half, the last third of life, resiliently, I promise you that one of the keys to their ability to do that is they have biblically learned how to sort out their past so that it doesn't claw after them and slow them down. So if the first mark of a resilient person is that he or she has a big picture view of life, they know where they're going, and secondly, they know where they've been and they've resolved the stuff of the past. Then the third mark of a resilient person is that he or she engages in self-mastery in the present. My track coach says to me, if you will trust me, And if you will do each day what I ask you to do, believing it's the best for you, if you will push yourself, you can achieve greatness as a runner. I went off to the University of Colorado with an athletic scholarship in track and cross country. And I quickly learned that the track coach there was a sadist. I learned this particularly on Mondays when we had a workout every Monday of the year that was the most... I mean, the man should have been put away for giving this workout. I used to live in dread fear of Monday afternoons. All morning long, I was preoccupied during classes with at 3.30, I have to do this workout. I hated it. I used to pray that Mondays would disappear from the calendar. And at 3.30 on Monday, I was on the track and we went through this workout. And when it was over, I would virtually crawl to the locker room in total exhaustion. But I had a teammate at Colorado by the name of Bill Toomey. And he would do this workout shoulder to shoulder with me. And when I was going off to the locker room, he would sit on the infield grass for 15 minutes resting, and then he would repeat the workout. 
Bill Toomey went on to win the gold medal in the decathlon in the 1966 Olympics. And I often say to people when I tell that story, that's why a lot of people have heard of Bill Toomey, but no one has ever heard of Gordon McDonald. <laughs> you see, for me, pain signaled the end of the workout. For Bill Toomey, pain signaled the beginning of the workout. He understood what I had a long time learning, that life in its long haul goes to the man, to the woman who knows how to discipline themselves, who knows how to press themselves every day to grow in every dimension of life. Oswald Chambers, the great devotional writer, writes in his journal, Today I met a man that I have not seen for ten years. When I knew him ten years ago, he was a mighty man of God. But I meet him today and he is garrulous and unenlivened, which are old Victorian words for his talk is superficial and he has a dead soul. And then Chambers goes on and he says, how many men become like that after the age of 40? I have a fear in my heart that this would happen to me and it drives me to prayer so that I will never, ever forget what I owe God. And that's my observation, too, to be quite blunt with you, about myself and about many of the brothers around me. Too many men stop growing after the age of 40. And by the way, in the Christian community, the other observation is that's when a lot of women begin to grow. It's why the church today has a lot of women in their 50s and 60s who are growing spiritually and in every other way, and a lot of men who are just sitting around claiming leadership authority simply because they're men, but not because they're growing. I'm a writer. I see the demos and the marketing statistics. 80% of books are bought by women. Men, for the most part, stop reading, they stop growing. And that's a great tragedy. Resilient people discipline themselves. Where? They discipline themselves physically. The older I get, the more important it is for me to take good care of my body through nutrition, through rest, through exercise. It pains me to see men in their 50s, 60s, and 70s abandoning the control of their bodies. If God has given you a great message, if he has a great thing for you to do in the second half of your life, your body better be strong enough to carry that message around. There's nothing worse than to have a great message and a body that's given up on you. So we discipline our bodies. We discipline our minds. We read. We gather fresh ideas. We don't read superficial stuff. We read heavy stuff that stretches us and makes us think. We surround ourselves with people who are smarter than we are. We ask lots and lots of questions. And we make sure that day by day, something in this mind of mine is being stretched. We discipline our emotions. We don't allow ourselves to get angry and irritable at every person who crosses our path in traffic. We discipline our finances so that we don't find ourselves in debt. We discipline our spiritual lives so that we grow closer to God and not further away. We discipline our vocational abilities so that each day we are becoming increasingly competent in the areas of giftedness that God has given to us. Discipline. It's intentional. And it's the only way I can guarantee resilience in the last half of life. One more, Mark. Resilient people 
surround themselves with tight and intimate community. They understand that there's about 15 people in their lives with whom they need to develop close and personal relationships. I'm in my 45th year of marriage. I will tell you quite bluntly, I love my wife today far more dearly than any other time in those 45 years. I enjoy being with her. She's the most important person in my life, and when she speaks to me, I must listen. I can't tell you how much fun it is to cuddle up with her on the couch on a Monday night and watch the football game together. It's our kind of week weekly scheduled party together and she brings in the junk food and we just sit there and we talk football and I can feel her trying to get closer to me and I can feel myself trying to get closer to her and I say to myself, it doesn't get any better than moments like this. But I know a lot of men who in their 44th year or 45th year of marriage are simply economically sharing a home with a roommate and the two people have moved in different directions And now that the children have left home, they have nothing to talk about. They don't share a common faith together that allows them to pray with each other at the drop of a hat. They don't have common goals for the last third of their lives. They don't have those endearments. But I want to tell you young guys, 45 years into marriage, there's a lot of things in my marriage I wouldn't trade for anything with guys half my age. I have friends. Twenty years ago, if you'd asked me who my male friends were, I would have said, well, I'm too busy to have any friends. My wife is my best friend. And then one day I discovered that that wasn't good enough, and so I had to fire my wife as my best friend and find some guys. So now I have a wife and I have some best friends. And I have five or six men in my life that I would die for, and I have a feeling they would be willing to die for me. They're the go-to guys when I want to talk male talk. They're the men who will look into my eyes and tell me, they don't see, they don't like what they see, or they hear my, my voice and say, you know, the things you're talking about worry me a little bit. They're the kind of men who will say, you're going to be in Memphis on Thursday morning. We'll be praying for you. Anybody who goes to Tennessee needs to be prayed for. <laughs> They're the men I can laugh with. They're the men I can share life with. And I can't imagine where I would be today in my 66th year if I did not have those key relationships that provide community. And I worry about the men I meet these days who are terribly lonely because they have forgotten how to make a friend. One of my friends was a man by the name of Al Napolitano. We had developed a friendship along with two or three other guys. And back about three years ago, Al and another guy by the name of Al, and another guy by the name of Dave, and I went to Switzerland for eight days to walk in the Alps. One day we picked a path that was a little bit more ambitious for a couple of the men than we should have picked. And as the time went by, I could feel my friend Al getting tireder and tireder and tighter until finally he reached a point of virtual, total, paralyzing exhaustion. And I worried for him because ten years ago he'd done a triple bypass. And so we all sat down there out in the middle of the mountains, three or four miles left to go on our walk. And uh, what do we do? And I suggested to the other two guys, you go on ahead. There's a mountain hotel at the end of the trail. Get some rooms. We're going to have to spend the night there. We can't get off the mountain. And then after they went on their way, I turned to my friend Al and I said, Al, here's the plan. We'll take a hundred steps and rest. A hundred steps and rest. 
If we're going uphill, you lead. If we're going downhill, I'll lead. And we started out a hundred steps and rest. A hundred steps and rest. And as the time went by and I could feel the fatigue even increasing at that rate, I would loop my arm through Al's as if we were a father and a bride going down an aisle in a church. And I would speak into his ear, Al, you're a courageous man. You're a bold man. Al, I love you. Al, tell me how you came to Christ when you were converted. Tell me how you met Lena, your wife. Tell me what your great dreams were for each of your children. Talk to me, Al. Tell tell me about this, that, and the other thing. Al, I want to pray right now. I want to pray this prayer into you. Al, let me sing this song to you as we're walking. It took almost four hours to go just two or three miles. A hundred steps and rest. A hundred steps and rest. And when we finally reached the end of the trail and got to that mountain hotel, the two of us had bonded tighter than I believed any two men could ever bond. And for the next two years, every time Al and I were together, we would go back and we would talk about that journey together. And he would say to me over and over again, a hundred steps and rest, a hundred steps and rest. And I came to realize that's the essence of friendship and community. We walk a hundred steps together and we rest. And we sing into each other's ear. And we encourage each other's hearts. When a man has relationships like that, there's resilience that comes. Al Napolitano got cancer a year ago and went to be with the Lord. And in the weeks before he died and left us, he and I would often sit in his living room and I'd sit on the couch next to him and sometimes unashamedly we'd reach out and just grab each other's arms much like we did on that mountainside three or four years ago. And now it was a different kind of journey and he would say, I know, Gordon, a hundred steps and rest, a hundred steps and rest. And when he went into the presence of the Lord, his friends and I stood around his graveside and we commended him to God. But we loved him and we loved each other. This was our community. So my question to you this morning is, how would you calibrate your own resilience? Caleb says, here I am 85 years of age and I'm as strong today as I was at the age of 40 when Moses sent me out. Why? Because I have served the Lord my God wholeheartedly. That's intentionality, gentlemen. That's a man who's looked at every cubic inch of his life and said, is this under the control of God moving in a common direction? And the answer was emphatically yes, it was. So that at 85, he's prepared to do his best work. My question to you is, are you in the same boat? Do you have a big picture view that God has given to you? And if he hasn't and you haven't heard it, what are you going to do to get it? Have you resolved the past in your life with all of its wounds and hurts and sadnesses? What's the state of your disciplinary plan in life? What are you pressing yourself to become day by day? Where are you facing the pain and pushing through it? And who's your community? And what's the quality of the relationships? When I first became a runner, one of the first great races that I was entered into was a mile relay race with three other teammates at the University of Pennsylvania Relays, which happen April every year. It's one of the largest track meets in the world. And thousands and thousands of runners converge for several days in Philadelphia. And they have these wonderful races. There's 40,000 people in the crowd. 
In the race that I was to run in the leadoff lap, the man in lap one and, and the first lane had just set the 100-meter dash in the prep school world, 100-meter dash record, about a month before. He was really good, and he was as arrogant and cocky as they come. And as we were hammering our starting blocks into the surface of the track, he said to me, McDonald, may the best man win. I'll be waiting for you at the finish line. Back in 1956 or 55, I guess that's what you call trash talk. And we got into our blocks and the judge started the commands. The gun went off and he just disappeared. He disappeared. And I can still feel the cinders that his spikes kicked up on the shins of my legs. And the other seven runners like myself almost instinctively said, well, we're running for the number two position. We went around the first turn down the backstretch and we got about 200 75, 280 meters into the race, I was number two, and I can remember suddenly realizing ahead, here was this runner, but now he was barely jogging, and he had his hands on his hips, which is always a sign of fatigue for a runner. And he was groaning so loudly you could hear him over the shouts of the 40,000 people. And I went around him as if he was standing still, and when I got to the finish line, as a good Christian gentleman, I waited for him. My coach, who was a godly man, caught up with me, and he walked off to one side in the midst of this enormous crowd of runners and spectators, and he took me to a quiet place, and he put his hand on my shoulder, and he called me by the name I used to go by in those days. He said, Gordy, I never want you to forget what you have just experienced. He said, this was a very fast man you ran against, but you know something? It makes very little difference how fast you are in the 100 meters if the race is 400 meters long. And that, gentlemen, is a law of life. Some of you are off to fast starts. You're 28, you're 35, you're 42, you're making six and seven figures, perhaps. You're climbing in the organization and you look good and nothing can go wrong. But you're only in the first half of the race. Make sure you have the stamina to finish going away strong. Because that's what Caleb did, and that's resilience. And I thank you for the privilege of talking about it today, and I'd like to pray for you before you leave the room. Father, I've come from how many miles, 1,500 miles away to be with men whom I'm not going to be able to meet personally, but whom I consider friends. I pray for them as they go to their places of work today. I ask that this may be a blessed day because they touch the lives of other people, customers and colleagues and vendors, and do so in a way that befits a man who follows Christ. I pray for those of us who are younger that we may acquire this kind of resilience, and for those of us who are older, that these may be the best years of our lives because we are obedient to you. For those, Lord, who are struggling today with issues in life that are deeply painful, I ask that the encouragement of God will go upon them. I ask, Lord, that this may be a grand day in Memphis because these brothers go out to make a difference in the name of Christ. Amen. May God bless you. There we are. Thank you, John. Good to be here. Thank you.
Thank you. Rick. Thanks. I'm sorry? I'm going to go have a talk with my son. <laughs> okay.